side, the only answer is going to be for God to somehow mitigate the great chasm that exists between us and Him. And of course, as the story of Scripture unfolds, that's exactly what He does. And the tabernacle is the pattern that God established to accomplish this. It's a foreshadowing, if you will. It's, it's telling us a story before the story even comes to fruition. So today we come to the second article of furniture that we find in the Holy of Holies. Again, we call it furniture because the scripture calls it furniture. You can't go to rooms to go and find any of this stuff there. It's, it's not furniture that we would typically think of as something that you would sit on or something that you would put in your house. But nonetheless, it is the items that we find inside the tabernacle. And so the second one here is the mercy seat. I'll show you a picture here. This is what the mercy seat would look like if you would talk about the top of, of the Ark of the Covenant. So this alone is the mercy seat. Now notice it is gold, just like the Ark of the Covenant is, and there are the two cherubim on each side with their wings outstretched, and uh, I want you to notice that the text tells us that they are looking in a very specific direction. They are looking not at each other, they're looking down at the Ark of the Covenant, Okay. So that's a very important thing to notice. Now, I want you to hear the text again as you think about what we're talking about. Exodus chapter 25, verse 17. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I shall meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So again, what you see here is that in the very middle of the mercy seat is where the presence of God is going to reside. He's going to exist between these two cherubim. Moses serves as this high priest for a while. In other words, Moses is the one, uh, the tabernacle is also referred to as you go throughout the rest of Exodus, it's referred to as the tent of meeting. Okay? Now this is where Moses goes into the Holy of Holies. He goes in and talks to God and God talks to him. This is where he receives much of the Torah and instructions that he's supposed to relate to Israel. This is where God communicates with Moses, because Moses pretty much serves as the high priest until you get a little further on. The book of Leviticus is where the priesthood is instated. Aaron is the high priest, and his lineage becomes the other priest, functioning priest, and it comes the lineage also from his family to be the priest that would replace him as high priest as well. That's, that's a little later on, but just know that right now Moses serves as the high priest here. Now, verse 17 through 20, notice, tells us how God instructed Moses to build the mercy seat. Verse 21 tells us exactly where it's to be located. Verse 22 tells us what purpose it's going to serve. Now, I want you to pay attention to a few details as well. First of all, notice that this is made of pure gold. 
Okay? Not only is this made of pure gold, it's made of one piece of pure gold. They didn't make the angels and then set them on the other side of it. This is literally hammered into fashion of what you see here out of one piece of gold. That means you have like this piece of gold that you begin to hit and hammer away and you begin to make and mold out of it almost the same way you would do with Play-Doh. If you had just a big block of Play-Doh and you begin to push and pull and begin to form or fashion something out of that, that's what the mercy seat was like. One piece of gold, not separate pieces, one piece hammered into this shape. Notice also that it has the two cherubim. They're facing each other. The scripture says very clearly they are looking down. They're looking down at the mercy seat. Now, what does that make the mercy seat then? Well, the mercy seat is a picture of the throne of God. So it is literally a throne. Now, why would we say that? Because as you get further into the Old Testament, Isaiah, for instance, Isaiah chapter 6, he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And then Isaiah says in this vision that he has that he sees these angels that surround him, that fly around him. And they're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So they're looking down at the throne of God. They are flying, so their wings are expanded. This is a picture of the throne of God. That God's throne is surrounded with these angels. These angels are mesmerized with the holiness of God. And yet here in this passage in Exodus, it tells us that the presence of God resides between these two angels. So knowing that this is a model of true heaven, and knowing that the presence of God exist here, this is a picture of the throne of God, all right? Now, the mercy seat uh, figures very prominently in one specific event that happens in the calendar of Israel, and that is Yom Kippur. Uh, You've probably heard of Yom Kippur, also referred to as the Day of Atonement. This was the day that the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies with a sacrifice and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Now, this would mitigate the sins of Israel. It would cover them. Now, there's also another ceremony that goes along with that on the Day of Atonement, which involved two goats, and there was a casting of lots to find out which goat was going to be the Azazel and which goat would become the scapegoat. And uh, the Azazel and the scapegoat, one of them is... is, um, is, is a sacrifice. The blood is what's used to go in and sprinkle on the mercy seat. The other one is led out into the wilderness and let go. Before that happens, the priest puts his hands on the horns of that goat and he pronounces all the sins of Israel onto the goat and that goat is taken out into the forest or into the woods, into the wilderness a long ways away. And it's a picture of God mitigating the sins of Israel in two very specific images. One through a blood sacrifice and one through a substitute that takes on the sins and removes them, takes them away. Okay, So I want you to keep that in mind, that that's what the mercy seat is used for. That's what it's created for. That's the only purpose that it serves for the nation of Israel that one day of the year that they would go in, the high priest would sprinkle that onto the blood onto the mercy seat. So the question we would have is why did God require this? Why did God require them for this one day of the year? And again, this is the only day that God ever required his people to fast, okay, as as an ongoing fast. You know, a lot of times I think we, we think of spirituality and we think of fasting with spirituality and very rarely do we think of feasting with spirituality. But I think I challenged you a couple of weeks ago that 
it's hard for you to read the scripture and get the idea that God doesn't like a good party because uh, he's always inviting them to a feast. He's always having some kind of food, inviting them to eat, to dine, to come with them. Even in uh, the New Testament, you have Jesus, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him. Uh, what was Jesus accused of? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. So this is a picture of who God is. And the other side of that is we so often think of fasting as this spiritual routine, and it is, and it does serve a purpose. But isn't it interesting that in all of the scripture, there's only one mandated fast that is a continual manda- mandate, and that is the Day of Atonement, and it's a 24-hour fast from sundown to sunrise or sundown to sundown the next day is a 24-hour fast during the Day of Atonement. And the Jews still celebrate this today. They'll go to synagogue. They stay usually in synagogue for the whole 24 hours, or at least the synagogue is open for 24 hours. A lot of people choose to just stay there because there's no temptation of anything to eat around. And, and they will listen to songs. They will read psalms together. They will go back and read the Torah, and that's how they celebrate. They, they think about sins of their life. They think about ways they've offended God, and they confess these sins. Okay, that's the only time that God has this mandated fast. And this fasting time was to remind them of their sinfulness. Here's another thing I want you to understand about the law of Moses. When you have the law of Moses and you have the sacrifices that are mentioned in the beginning of the book of Leviticus, it's important to understand that the law of Moses only provides for the forgiveness of unintentional sins. Did you know that? All the sacrifices that you as a person could go and make can only cover sins that you made unintentionally. There's nothing in the law of Moses that covers intentional sin. If you sin intentionally, there's nothing that can, be, nothing that can happen, no ceremony you can go through to be forgiven of that intentional sin. The only thing that can cover the intentional sins is this once a year, day of atonement, when the sins of the people are covered with this sacrifice, with this substitute. Okay? So that becomes very powerful. Okay? Now, again, let's look at Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. This is what God tells Moses, included in the law of Moses. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So again, this is what we call propitiation, or this is a substitution. This is one person standing in the place for another, or this is one sacrifice standing in the place of the requirement of another. So in the law of Moses, there was a way to have a sacrifice that would stand in your place. In other words, it should be your blood that is shed, but instead there's a substitute and their blood is required in your place. This is where it's important to understand that God uses patterns as a means to point to a later reality or a later fulfillment. Even though God used these means to mitigate their sins for a time, it was not permanent at all. Far from it. It was something that had to be repeated over and over and over and over again. Uh, a, a Jewish joke about that sometimes was about somebody who would go through the whole deal of, you know, sacrificing the animal. And if you get into the law of Moses, you find out when they go and make these sacrifices and, and they, um, you know, cut the animal and they have to separate the pieces a very certain way. They have to wash the organs. It's very, 
a, a very uh, humane treatment of the animals, even in the sacrificial process. The skins have to be taken and separated out. Everything has to be done according to the way God instructed it. And then after all of that, you know, he's walking out of the tabernacle or the temple and he trips and says a cuss word. And now he has to go through the whole thing again. Now, the point of it is it only covers what has already been done. It doesn't cover what you're going to do. So there is always this need for another sacrifice. There's always going to be this need. Why? Because it never makes us right. It only covers what we've done to that point, but it doesn't change us. Therefore, we're always going to need another sacrifice. That is the problem. Now, later on, when the writer of Hebrews begins to reflect on these earlier patterns that God has given, he says in chapter 10, I'm going to read verse 1 and verses 3 and 4. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Do you hear what he's trying to say there? What he's pointing at is if you go back to the law of Moses and you pay attention to it, the one thing you see is the sacrifices never made you right. It only did was covered your problems, it covered your mistakes, it covered your sins, but it did nothing for you. It didn't make you right, it didn't make you righteous, it just covered your unrighteousness up to that point. Therefore, it always had to be repeated. He continues on, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see this? So in other words, there is this covering, but it doesn't take away our sins in the sense of it doesn't take away all of our sins. It just covers for a time. Did you see what he's conveying there to us? Not only did it not take care of their sins with any kind of permanence, it actually became this constant reminder that they were sinful, and there was nothing they could do about it. In other words, there was nothing they could do to change and never have to come back to that place to offer another sacrifice. There was nothing they could do to make themselves righteous. These repetitive sacrifices were this constant reminder of their sinfulness and the seriousness of their sinfulness. A death is having to take place every time their sins are to be covered. Death was always going to be a part of their story unless God intervenes in some powerful, dramatic way. They were never going to be able to relate to God outside of relating to him through this constant repetition of death. That's going to be their story unless God somehow steps in and changes the narrative. But contained... And this repetitive pattern was a promise that things were not always going to be this way. Again, that's the importance of the pattern and recognizing the pattern. God was promising that he would deal with our sin problem once and for all. And of course, from the time of Moses and the law of Moses all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, it gets more pronounced and more pronounced 
the further you go. The drumbeat gets faster and faster and louder and louder till you get to the prophets and they begin to say, you know what, it's not about the land at all. It's not about being a Jew at all. It's something about God is going to send his Messiah through the Jewish people and he's going to take care of the sins of the world once and for all. And you don't really get that drama until you get deep into the prophets. And it's almost like the drumbeat continues all the way up to the end of the Old Testament with this great anticipation that God one day is going to send the one who would take care of the sinfulness of man once and for all. This is why such sacrificial language was used in relation to Jesus whenever you are reading the Gospels. Look at what it says again in the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verse 29, says the next day he saw Jesus, and this is John the Baptist, coming toward him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I know that's a passage you're very familiar with, and I know that you know what he's talking about there. But again, I just want to point to the fact that he's using sacrificial language. He's using the language that says you're the Passover Lamb. The Passover Lamb is the one that's slain. It is blood that comes from the Passover lamb that is collected, that is applied to the doorpost of the house. This is sacrificial language, but it's not like the old, because never in the Old Testament did it ever say that there was a sacrifice that could take care of the sins of the world. John is taking this language of the Old Testament, but he's using it in a way that it's never been applied before. That somehow through this person, God is going to mitigate the sins of humanity once and for all. And not just the Jewish people, the entire world could benefit from this. Jesus was the one who fulfilled the Passover. He is the one that At the end of his life, his ministry, he said to his disciples, I've longed to share this dinner with you. And he celebrates a Passover with them. And he gets to the third cup, the cup of redemption. And he says, this cup, I want you all to drink from my cup. And he he takes his cup that he'd been drinking from, from the Passover. He said, all of you drink from it. This, and his words were, is my blood. The blood of the new covenant. In other words, this blood's going to be different than the blood of the old covenant. Now again, understand, it's one covenant. God saves people the same way throughout the entire time. It is through faith, okay? That's the way righteousness was applied to Abraham. It's the way righteousness is applied to us. Believing, understanding, knowing that God is faithful to his word. That's really the foundation of salvation. But I want you to know that he says in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. That's sacrificial language that Jesus is using with his disciples. And literally, he's talking about this pattern that God had given his people for such a long time, a pattern that was going to find its full realization the very next day with Jesus on the cross shedding his blood. We know how that day went. He was betrayed. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was killed, he was buried, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. Now, if you go back to John chapter 20, verse 12, think about what that verse talks about there. If you remember, John 20, verse 12 is where Jesus has risen from the dead. This is where Mary Magdalene has run. She was going to bring more um, spices and and, 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 um, 
anointing to put on Jesus' body. Because okay? remember, Jesus' burial was very rushed. So they didn't all get to do what they wanted to do. So now they've had to wait for the Passover to end and the Sabbath to end. And now the first day of the week, they're able to come and do these things. So she's going to go and apply some more stuff to Jesus' body, what, probably what she didn't get to do uh, at the end of his life. And when she gets there, um, she finds that this great big heavy stone has been rolled back. She stopped and she looked inside and she found Jesus' body that was not there, just the shell of what he was wrapped in. There was just the burial slab. And it says there, there were two brilliant angels that were seated there. Listen to what John says, chapter 12. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. Where? One at the head and one at the feet. Go back to the picture of the mercy seat. The same picture that we have here is what Mary saw when she ran into the tomb. She saw a slab, and at one end was an angel, and at the other end was an angel. And what was in the middle of it was where Jesus' body was. What's the significance of that? You go back to the Old Testament. That's where the blood was applied for the mitigation of sins. What she sees here and what God was relating to his people and what he relates to us because it's contained in the Gospels is Jesus is the fulfillment of the mercy seat, the day of atonement. You see the importance in that little detail, right? I love how one author described it. He says this, listen to this. The place was doubtless charged with the atmosphere of mystery and wonder angels bring with themselves when entering into our world of sensory perception. And yet no tremor seems to have run through Mary, no feeling of awe to have made her draw back. A greater blindness to fact is here than that which made her miss the sign of the empty grave. What more convincing evidence of the truth of the resurrection could have been offered than the presence of these two angels silently, reverently, majestically sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain. Placed like the cherubim on the mercy seat, they covered between themselves the spot where the Lord had reposed and flooded it with celestial glory. It needed no voice of theirs to proclaim that here death had been swallowed up in victory. Ever since the angels descended into this tomb, the symbolism of burial has been radically changed. Isn't that awesome? Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 12. He, meaning Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing a, what's the word? Eternal what? Not a temporary redemption. Not a redemption until next Passover or a redemption until the next day of atonement or a redemption until you sin again and you need another. No, it's an eternal redemption. Past sins, present sins, and future sins are covered with a perfect sacrifice. So the question we have to ask is this. What holy place is the author referring to here? 
the writer of Hebrews? What, what, what holy place is it that Jesus entered into? Did Jesus, after his resurrection, enter into the physical holy of holies in Jerusalem and offer blood? No. Then what is he talking about? Remember, patterns. That this is a picture of heaven. Jesus went to the real mercy seat, which is where? The throne of God in heaven. He goes there and Jesus becomes the great high priest who goes into heaven's holy of holies, the very presence of God. He sprinkles the eternal mercy seat with his own perfect blood and he frees those who trust in him from the consequences of sin for eternity. Now, Jesus, the great high priest, the lamb of sacrifice, he sits symbolically on heaven's mercy seat between the winged angels, just as we see in Isaiah's picture of heaven. No more sacrifices. No more temporary fixes. No more separation. No more worshiping from a distance. No more fear of eternal judgment. As the writer of Hebrews says, we can boldly approach the throne of God. Listen to what he says in verse 19 of chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus. Not with it, but by it. It's already, the high priest has already made the way for us. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The writer of Hebrews says that what we find in Exodus was a temporal reality of an eternal truth but Jesus is the high priest his body is the veil that was torn so that we could enter in and it is his blood that has been applied to the mercy seat so that we don't need the blood of goats or lambs or bulls anymore we have the perfect sacrifice that's been made for us now remember the whole point of scripture is to remind us how much God wants a relationship with us. It was lost in the garden when we chose sin and rebellion over the relationship with God. But God continually pursues his people until he makes the ultimate sacrifice to give them an opportunity to come in and to benefit from a relationship with him. In Mark chapter 15 verse 38 we have this very familiar yet very powerful image of the fulfillment of these promises. The veil in the temple was torn in two. The veil that held us back for so long. The barrier that had been there between us and God had now been removed. From the very beginning, the message of these divine scriptures pointed to that very central truth that God wants us to benefit from that relationship with him. Well, what we know in the fulfillment of all of these things in the gospel is that Christ accomplishes this for us. Not only does Jesus take his place on the mercy seat, what the scripture says is that he is the mercy seat. Now, I want you to again think about 
what the mercy seat is. Go back to the original picture we have of the Ark of the Covenant um, that has the mercy seat on top of it. Now, I want you to remember again that if you look at this, you have the mercy seat on top, and there's a picture, a pattern of three here, okay, that we have in Scripture. The three are you have the Ark of the Covenant, then you have the mercy seat, and the Scripture says that on top of the mercy seat is where the presence of God is, where the presence of God exists, okay? So you have those three things that are right there in order. Now, I want you to think about that again. I want you to think about the mercy seat as the thing that separates the physical from the eternal. What do I mean? Think about what's underneath the mercy seat. It is the physical reminders, God's provision, God's authority, God's choosing, God's law. These are all the things that we find ourselves failing in. We're not respecting God's authority. We don't meet the standard of God's law. We don't really believe that God's going to provide or that he has provided for us. And so that is the rebellion of humanity over and over and over again. We never can meet these physical demands. But the mercy seat sits on top of that because it separates us from the presence of God that says until we can meet these things, we can never exist in the presence of God. And so in that, that middle is also a mediation. That's where the blood is applied over and over again until the blood of Jesus is applied once and for all and the picture, the temporal picture is fulfilled in an eternal way. So not only is the mercy seat the place in heaven where Jesus now resides because he's taken his rightful place, what we see in, in uh, Revelation when it says the lamb that was slain is sitting on the throne, that's the picture again of sacrifice on the throne of God, the blood of Jesus being applied for this eternal picture of our salvation. Jesus not only sits on the mercy seat, he is the mercy seat. You know, when Mary went and saw those angels sitting there, they asked a question of her. They said, why are you crying? Think about that for a moment. Why are you crying? I mean, you've come here and you found nobody. And what you have found is a picture of God's provision Angels are sitting there where the body that you were looking for was supposed to be. Glorious, magnificent angels. Not only that, they're at the head and the foot of this place where the Messiah once lay. You have a picture of God providing for you. What are you looking for? Why are you crying? Do you see the picture of this new reality? And I think a lot of times that if we were to apply that same thing to our situation, that maybe those same things would be said to us. As you wander through this life that you're living out here in the temporal, what are you looking for? What is it that you're looking for here? Why are you crying? Again, there's nothing wrong with the emotions that God's given us when we lose loved ones or we go through tragedy, tears are appropriate. The question is not whether tears are coming, it's why we have those tears and do we shed those tears with a greater reality? Why are you crying? Are you crying because you know that this was not God's permanent plan and your heart aches to see it fulfilled? Or are you crying because you're missing the reality that one day 
God is going to make all things new? Are you crying because you have such a temporal perspective of your life that all you chase after in this life is something to bring you pleasure here, something to fulfill you here? What is it that you are trying to pursue in this life? Has the reality of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the fulfillment of the mercy seat and all that it stands for, has that really set well with you to the point that it's changed your perspective, changed your reality? What is it you're looking for? Do you live each day in the joy of the Lord? Let's pray. God, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your provision. We thank you for a picture of the mercy seat that reminds us of how you have provided for us, where we have never met your law, and we don't always see your provision, and we don't always respect your authority, God, because we get so inundated by the world around us and the evil in our own hearts and minds and our own selfish ambitions, God, that we miss the eternal things. God, thank you for being patient. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for giving us your word, your Holy Spirit. Thank you for paying for our sins once and for all so that we could be made righteous. Lord, do we take full advantage of the opportunity of coming into your presence every day boldly, as the scripture says, boldly coming into your presence. Lord, I just pray that today that there would be a benefit to the wise who have ears to hear, that they would not just be hearers of the word, but be doers of the word as well. That they would not just hear the teaching, but they would embrace it, allow it to wash over their souls, to convict them, to change them, to bring life to them. God, I pray that you would have your way, the hearts of your people, even now. We pray this in the name that's above every name, Jesus. Amen.